Today's scripture passage is from God's holy word found in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have already been reminded of your goodness to us, um, of your grace to us, of the mercy that precedes us, of the kindness that leads us towards repentance, um, of the fact that you are the one who have called us into your presence. At, at, at every point in this service, we're constantly reminded um, that you have gone before us. You have taken the first move. Um, it is not we who have sought you out. You have pursued us. Um, you have pursued us when we were turned the other way, when we were running in the opposite direction from you. Uh, you have called us uh, to yourself. You have called us um, after your own name. You have called us your people, and so you have made us a people, and you've brought us into your presence, and we thank you. Um, Father, I, I thank you um, that in these uh, months where we're um, listening to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, we're, we're, we're being reminded again and again that the ways of the world are upside down compared to the ways of your kingdom, that they are backwards um, compared to the ways of your kingdom. Um, Father, there are many in this room um, who could identify uh, with these Beatitudes that we heard from, from Jesus at the beginning of this sermon. Um, many who would say that today they feel poor in spirit, that they are mourning, uh, that they are weak. Um, and I thank you um, that what we've been hearing from Jesus says um, that they are blessed, um, that they are the ones uh, who are being brought near, that they are the ones who are receiving these promises that they will be comforted, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Father, it's a hard thing um, to hear um, that to be your people, um, to be called by you out of this world means that in many ways this world is not going to feel like home, um, that it's going to feel strange, that it's going to feel alien, um, that we're going to meet with, with opposition. Um, at the same time, it's, it's comforting because in so many ways the world already feels that way. Um, 
Father, we thank you um, that, that, that in this sermon we, we can see that um, to the extent that it, it feels like something is off in this world and like we don't belong here, um, that's because that's the case. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. I thank you that, that that's not where your promises end, that you are not only a God who has called us out of a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, but that you have also sent us toward that world and promised uh, that you are a God who is redeeming all things, who is restoring all things. Um, Father, we struggle to hope in that. Um, we struggle to wait. Uh, we struggle for patience. We struggle for endurance. Um, we struggle for hope. And I thank you that you have um, told those who are weary uh, and exhausted. We, we've heard this at least twice already today in our call to worship and in one of the songs. Jesus, you said, those who are weary and heavy laden should come to you. That's what we're here to do. Uh, we have come to you to hear your words. Um, Holy Spirit, as always, uh, we need you uh, to illuminate those words for our hearts, uh, that we understand what Jesus is saying to us, that we understand that he is saying them to us. We need you to apply them to our hearts, to our lives, the circumstances um, of, of our lives that we bring into this place. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that for each of us. Would you... Um, Use your word uh, to encourage and to convict, to shape and to mold, um, that we would look more like Jesus when we walk out of here than when we came in. I thank you that we can pray these things for you knowing that you have promised to do it, um, that we are not asking you for something that we have made up, but we are repeating back to you your words because you are the one that said that your word never goes out from you without accomplishing your purposes. Uh, and so it is with boldness and it is with expectation um, that I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are continuing um, in our series looking at the Sermon on the Mount um, here in Matthew Chapters 5 through 7, we've, um, we've, we've, we've just begun. We're taking it slow. We're taking just a few verses at a time, kind of digging in and savoring uh, each uh, and, and every word. Um, let me just remind you of, of where we've been so far. Um, the, the whole sermon as a whole um, actually has a really nice structure to it um, and, and kind of an easy-to-follow outline once you know it's there. Um, by the way, speaking of outlines, I remembered to get mine in this week, uh, and so if you turn at the, to the back of the bulletin, there is an outline uh, at, the, at the back of, um, of the, the order of service that you can use to, to take notes in this. Um, Jesus' whole sermon, this, these, these whole three chapters can be seen as him unpacking what it means to repent and believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 summarized his whole ministry in that way. That's what he preached, repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. And this, this whole sermon unpacks what does that actually look like. Um, we saw that Jesus began 
uh, in what are called the Beatitudes, uh, the, the, the introduction to the sermon, talking about who inhabits the kingdom of heaven. Who, who are those who have their citizenship there and not in this world? What do they look like? Um, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. Um, this is where we see that the people who are in the kingdom of heaven, the people who are blessed, the people who are living the good life uh, and who are to be envied um, because they belong to the kingdom of heaven are the last ones that we would expect and maybe the last ones that we would want to be. Um, but that's what Jesus said. Uh, these are the ones who uh, inhabit the kingdom of heaven. Um, he finished up that introduction by talking about salt and light. So he moved from who is in the kingdom of heaven to what is the impact they're meant to have on the world. And, and we saw that it had this, this dual aspect to it, negative and positive, salt and light. Salt, which is a preservative, Salt is, is meant to indicate that God's people are meant to arrest the decay of a world that is falling apart, to pull it back from chaos. Um, and light, we're also meant to point toward the one who is truly worthy of worship. Uh, we're meant to point towards Jesus who is the light and who has light in himself. So as we said, um, and as we said that the past couple weeks, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, um, it's because he's also said, I am the light of the world. And we have light to the extent that we're united to him. We have light the way the moon has light. We reflect Jesus' light the way the moon reflects the light of the sun. That was the introduction. Now Jesus has moved into the main body of his sermon. Um, and he is talking about the law. Um, last week, Bradley introduced this, this whole section, looking at how Jesus introduces this whole section, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. Bradley talked about Jesus' commitment to the law, which still has a role uh, to play in God's salvation history. If, if the sermon as a whole is an exposition of repent and believe that the kingdom of God is near, this next section we're going to be looking at, certainly the rest of chapter 5, maybe a bit more, but certainly the rest of chapter 5 could be thought of as the way that Jesus unpacks what he says in verse 20 when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These next several sermons as we go through the rest of, of chapter 5 are going to explain what does that mean? What does it mean for your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Here's what I want to talk about today. We're looking at the first um, section of the rest of, of chapter 5. We're looking at, at chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Um, and I want to talk again, about Jesus' relationship to the law. So on the one hand, I want to talk more about the way that Jesus fulfills the law, because we're going to see him do something in this section that he's going to do six times. Six times in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And since we're going to hear that again and again, I want to take a little bit of time to say, what is Jesus doing? So we're going to talk about Jesus' authority to fulfill the law, but we're also going to talk about his promise to fulfill the law.
So his authority and his promise to fulfill the law. And then as we dig down into this section, verses 21 to 26, where he's talking about murder, about the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and as he reveals that this is really about anger and contempt, um, we're going to see that just as Jesus said that you're to be salt and light, you're to have a negative pulling back impact and a positive pushing toward impact on the world, so there's also a negative and a positive aspect to the way that Jesus explains this commandment, that it's both about turning away from something, turning away from contempt of our brothers and sisters, but it's also about turning toward something. It's about pursuing peace with them. The order that we're going to look at this we're going to look at the authority of Jesus to fulfill the law first, and then we're going to dig down into what he says about the Sixth Commandment. We'll look at refusing contempt and pursuing peace. And then, at the end, we'll talk about Jesus' promise, his promise to fulfill the law. So, let's start off by looking at the authority that Jesus has to fulfill the law. Um, like I said, six times... In the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to say what he, basically what he says in verses 21 and 22 here. You have heard it said, uh, or rather you have heard that it was said to those of old, and then in verse 22, but I say to you. What's Jesus doing here? As Bradley said last week, Jesus is very clear that he is not saying, here's the law of Moses that you've always had, and I am setting that aside and giving you something different or giving you something more than that. Jesus is very clear. I am not here to abolish the law of Moses. Not one iota or one, what does it say here? I always heard jot and tittle. Okay, iota and dot is what the ESV has, right? Not one little mark out of the law is going to pass away. This matters. He is for the law of Moses. Jesus is not saying, you have read in the law of Moses, but I say to you. What he says is, you have heard it said. What he's referring to is that this was an oral culture. This was a culture in which people would be taught by people who would speak to them. A lot of them couldn't read the law for themselves, either because they weren't literate at all, or because most of them didn't read Hebrew. The common language was Aramaic. So a lot of them would not have actually read the law of Moses, at least not in the original language. They would be relying on their teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees. Um, what Jesus is saying is, what you have heard taught to you is this. But I'm saying something else. And what he is saying is, here is what the law of Moses has meant the whole time. I'm telling you, the fulfillment of this law that you've had explained to you in ways that don't quite measure up. Jesus is not contradicting Moses. He's telling us what Moses was saying the whole time. Um, this is going to be important because as Jesus goes through these things, we'll see that with each of these commands, he is raising the bar, right? He is going to tell us, you have heard it said, in this case, 
don't murder. But I say to you that if you're even angry at your brother, if you insult your brother, um, in each of these things, uh, he's going to be raising the bar. And there's a temptation to think, okay, so what they had was a law that was doable. You know, don't murder. Okay, don't murder. I think I can do that. I think I can go through my life without killing anybody. Um, that feels doable. There's a temptation to think that what Jesus is saying is the law of Moses gave you rules that you could follow, but I'm telling you it's actually much harder than that. We need to understand the law of Moses was never meant to be rules that you can follow. It was never meant to be rules um, that you, on your own strength, that we on our own strength can satisfy and get ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. Um, the law of Moses was always given to people that God had already saved, had already pulled into his presence. The law of Moses was always meant to be a description. Here's what it looks like to be saved. Here's what it looks like to be my people. We, we can see that going back right to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? You shall have no other gods before me. Except that's not how the Ten Commandments begin. That's the first commandment. But the way the Ten Commandments begin is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, therefore, you will have no other gods before me. You will not carve graven images. You will not take my name in vain, etc., etc. Right? I have saved you. I have brought you out already. Now, therefore, here's what life is going to look like. Um, that's what the law of Moses was always meant for. Jesus is not doing anything new when he raises the bar um, and describes to us what it looks like uh, to live in God's kingdom. The other reason that this is important, um, and this is why I gave you that quote um, in, in the beginning, Jesus is constantly, throughout this whole section, he's going to be telling us, look, you've heard it said that the law says don't do X. Refrain from why. Pull back. But every time, as he raises the bar, he's always going to do it in this way. He's going to say, actually, there's something you're supposed to be moving towards. In other words, the law is not a list of things not to do. The law is describing the kind of people we're supposed to be, the kind of hearts that we are supposed to have. It's not just a set of constraints. It is a guide. It is a light. That's, that's why the psalmist is able to delight in the law. This is describing a good life. This is describing what the world is meant to look like. I mean, imagine if we could just do the things that are in that big, long quote that I gave you. What would the world look like if people lived like that? Jesus is definitely speaking with authority here, right? When he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Um, he is absolutely claiming the authority uh, to speak on his own behalf. The very end of this sermon, if you look, flip all the way to the end of chapter 7, um, it, it's going to say that the people marveled at what they heard because he was speaking as one with authority, not like their scribes. The scribes, as they were teaching, they would say, well, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, 
They would, they would list all of the different things that previous um, teachers of the law had said. Um, Jesus uniquely is saying, I say to you. He's claiming that authority for himself. And he can say this about the word because it is his word. He's not just a teacher of the law. He's not just an interpreter. He's the one that gave it in the first place. Um, it is his word. He is the word, John tells us. The word become flesh. So Jesus is absolutely someone that has authority to interpret and to teach and to fulfill this law. One of the things for you to be asking throughout this entire series, um, you, you know, this, this series on the Sermon on the Mount is an opportunity for us to hear the very words of Jesus that, that might sum up in the most concise way possible um, what he wants us to do, who he wants us to be, his vision for the way the world and the kingdom are supposed to look. Um, and a question for you to be asking yourself throughout this entire series is, who is this Jesus to me? Do I believe that this Jesus is not only an interpreter of the word, but that he is the word, that he is God, that he has that kind of authority in my life? Let's take a closer look at what he says in these verses. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So one thing we see Jesus doing right away is upping the urgency um, in that it's not just the council. It's not just human judgment that you need to be fearing. Um, it is the judgment of God in heaven. But again, he says, it's not enough to say that you haven't killed someone. He's going right for the heart, not just the action that would lead to someone's death, but to the heart that lies beneath that. He talks about anger, but he doesn't just talk about anger. He goes on. He says, whoever insults his brother, whoever says, you fool. And I think the best concept to, to pull all of this together is the idea of contempt. That's why I say the first thing that we're looking at here is Jesus is telling us to refuse contempt, to pull away from contempt. Um, contempt uh, is, I looked this up just to get the dictionary de definition out there, it's the feeling that a person is beneath consideration worthless or deserving scorn. I actually think that's perfect for what Jesus is saying here because the word raka, um, it means worthless fellow, worthless person, right? Um, if you want an example uh, of this from my own life, um, there have been many times, more than I care to admit, um, that I have been riding my bike in Boston traffic and someone honks at me, someone yells at me, and I just give him one of this, blah, you know, like, you're not worth it. That's what I'm saying with this. That's what this is, worthless, not worth my time. Um, what we used to say when I was a kid was, talk to the hand. <laughs> this is what we said in the 90s, which, as I am constantly reminding you, were a very silly decade. 
but it captures it, right? You're not worth my time. You're not worth a face-to-face -face confrontation here. Talk to the hand. Ah, raka. That's the heart that Jesus is condemning here. Now, of course, there's such a thing as righteous anger, right? I mean, Jesus, is, it, Jesus condemning anger here, it might make you wonder, well, wait a minute, I remember Jesus getting angry. Um, isn't there such a thing as righteous anger? And there is. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Um, you know, the, the, the example that leaps to your mind is Jesus getting angry in the temple, right? Clearing out the, 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 the temple. Um, but maybe a better example would be this one. In Mark 3, um, on one occasion when it's, it's the Sabbath, and he's about to, um, they actually bring someone to him in order to test him, to see if he'll heal someone on the Sabbath. And it says, to, it says in, in Mark 3 that he said to them, he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And then, and then it says this. It says, he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Righteous anger, the anger that Jesus experienced, was anger at the sin that was destroying the people around him. It was anger that was moving him towards those people because he loved them. That's actually a kind of anger that some of us might need to feel more of. Some of us might actually need to, to have more capacity to be angry at the way that sin is destroying the lives of those around us. We might need to be a little less complacent um, about that. But that's the opposite of the kind of contempt that Jesus is warning us against. Contempt says, you're not worth my time. Righteous anger says, no, no, you are very much worth my time and my energy and even my anger at the sin that is tearing you apart. I think this is a really important distinction to make um, because it's possible to read these verses, it's possible to read Jesus saying um, that those who are angry, those who say, you fool, uh, those who insult their brothers, like condemning those things. It, it's easy for some of us to read those things and think that we're off the hook um, because we're just kind of naturally not confrontational people, right? We're just not very hot-headed. It might be easy to say, well, I don't get angry at people like that. I don't call them worthless to their face or even behind their back. Um, but contempt can very easily take the form of apathy can very easily take the form of an exhaustion that sets in, that says, I don't have the energy to deal with this person anymore. It's just not worth my time. Listen, the way you can tell the difference between righteous anger and the contempt that Jesus is condemning here, righteous anger will always drive you towards relationship. It will drive you towards people. It will drive you towards God. Contempt will drive you away. Contempt will turn you inward. It will isolate you. Do you find yourself angry to the point of contempt? Do you find yourself 
exhausted in your dealings with people to the point where you say, I just can't do it anymore. Who, who have you dismissed as just not being worth your time? You know, you know what you do with that? If that's, if that's who you are, if that's where you are, the only place to go with that is towards prayer. You might not have what it takes to deal with that person. You might be at the end of yourself. You might be exhausted. That might really be where you are. Then go to God in prayer. Ask him for the strength. Ask him for the endurance. If nothing else, you can pray for the person that you don't have the strength to face right now. When Jesus continues speaking, there's a sudden shift in his perspective that I want us to take a look at. And this will help us understand how he turns towards pursuing peace. Um, he's been talking about being angry with people. And so when he gets to verse 23, what you would expect him to say, if you look at verse 23, you would expect that he would say, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that you have something against your brother, right? He's been talking about you're angry at somebody. But he doesn't say if you remember that you have something against your brother. He flips it around. He says you remember that your brother has something against you. Why is that? This is where I think what Jesus is doing is pointing us to the positive side of the law. He's not only going to talk about how we need to refuse contempt. He's going to talk, he's basically going to say it's not even enough that your heart turns away from anger, away from contempt. You need to have a heart that is pursuing peace, that is actually driven towards reconciliation. Even in the case where you're not the one who's angry, but you realize, oh, they're angry with me. The kind of heart that we're supposed to have is one that looks at that situation and takes it on ourselves. We take on the onus to go and pursue um, peace. And, and you can see the urgency, again, uh, with which he talks about this. Not even worship is meant to get in the way of this. If you're standing there at the altar, offering your gift, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled first, and then come back. That's, that's pretty urgent. You're in the middle of worship. You're supposed to drop what you're doing. Um, you know, we have this time in our service, the, the, the passing of the peace. It really is meant to be a time when we could actually deal with each other. I, I know it's about two minutes long. It's not long enough to have a real conversation, but maybe it is long enough to go and look someone in the eye and say, listen, could we talk later? Things are not okay. We need to get right. Um, that would be tremendously honoring to the God that we're worshiping. Tremendously honoring to the Jesus that has said these words. I know that the bar is raising higher and higher the longer I'm talking. Um, I know that this might be feeling heavier and heavier. 
Um, I know that I can think of people uh, that I am exhausted of dealing with. I know that I can think of people that I really ought to be pursuing reconciliation, and I don't want to do it. And this is why we need to hear not only that Jesus has the authority to fulfill the law, but that he also has made promises that he is going to see this fulfilled in us. Because, as Bradley said last week, as we've been saying throughout this, this, this series on the Sermon on the Mount, as we're looking at the law, as Jesus is um, not abolishing it, but fulfilling it, um, he really does mean this. This really is a description of what we're supposed to be like. These, these, these really are who lives in the kingdom of heaven. This really is what we are made for. How is that possible? Well, it's the same as we've been saying every week. It's only because by grace we are united to one who has kept this law perfectly, who has perfectly fulfilled this law, who is not only going to fulfill the law by paying the penalty that the law demands in our place on the cross, um, but who also calls us to abide in him, to draw our life from him, to eat of him as, of, as living bread, to take living water from him, to draw all of our life from him, to reflect his light that he shines in and of himself. How does that happen? The first way that that happens is simply that we come into his presence. We look at him. We behold him. We see who he is. We see what he is doing. Paul, in his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, puts it this way. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If we are going to be people who refuse contempt and who pursue peace, then the first thing that we have to do is to look at the one who did that perfectly for us. The one who had every reason to hold us in contempt and refuse to do so. The one who pursued peace and reconciliation with us at the cost of his life. If you know the love of God that has burned with white-hot anger against everything that would destroy you, if you know that love that, that, that sent Jesus into the world to pursue peace with you, then and only then are you going to be able to be a peacemaker and pursue reconciliation. What we are here to do every week is to draw near to this Jesus. Um, one other thing about righteousness exceeding the scribes and Pharisees, you know, it, it's interesting. The Pharisees, um, they very clearly had a view of the world that said the world is a fallen place. It is a sinful place. It's full of sin, and it's so hard to stay away from sin and to keep ourselves clean and pure. They weren't entirely wrong. But, but the implications they drew from that is, okay, so we need to draw bigger and bigger fences and hedges and barriers to keep us away from sin. 
not entirely a bad thing. The Bible says flee from sin. It's not a bad thing to put barriers between yourself and sin. But when you get down to it, what Jesus is saying is that it's not enough to just put barriers between yourself and sin. You need to draw near to something. You need to be not keeping yourself away from something. You need to know where you're going. We need to be drawing near uh, to Jesus. His, his view of the good life is for us to come to him. He says, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, come to me, learn from me, I will give you rest. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, come to me, watch how I do it. Watch the unforced rhythms of grace in my life. Draw your life from me, and you too will be changed. So listen, if your anger is taking the form of exhaustion, and if the call to pursue peace sounds like a call into a storm that's going to overwhelm you and drown you, then come to the one who is with you in that storm. Come to the one who offers to give you rest. Come to the one who has set this table in front of you to feed you with his own body given for you, with his own blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. We are here to draw near. Let's pray before we come.